Well, we continue our road through Romans. We are in chapter 11. I was trying so hard this week to finish it and shock you this morning by actually completing Romans 11, but I'm sorry to say that I just couldn't do it. If I did, I'll be preaching for about 50 minutes to an hour, and that's not going to happen. So we'll just get to verse 32 today, which leaves us with only three verses left. However, those three verses at the end, which we call the doxology, contain so much theology that I couldn't just go through them quickly. I didn't know whether it was the Holy Spirit that constrained me or just my stubbornness, but I wanted to explore them a bit further, even if it's just for my own benefit. So apologies in advance for that. So here we are, Romans chapter 11. If you have your Bibles with you, this morning's message is called Some Insights into the plan of God for the Jews. If you're just joining us this morning, this might be confusing for you, especially if this is the first time you're hearing me preach. Uh, but pretty much all you need to know to help you be on the same page as us is that the overall goal in Romans 11 is answering this question. What is the plan of God for the Jews? These next few verses give us some in, um, insight or some details of what is actually going to happen in the future, particularly when it comes to the Jews. Again, the overall theme of the chapter is concluding that God has not cancelled his plans for the Jews, but they have just been postponed. You know, in a sense, an illustration which reflects this truth, I so wish I could just relate this illustration literally to myself in ways, but then in other ways not. But let's just say I had quite a lot of money at hand and I decided to put a down payment or a deposit for a nice holiday house maybe in the Bahamas or something, you know, somewhere nice like that to do it early into my life. And therefore I see there is a product, a destiny, you could say that I'm going to be able to experience when I retire, which would be great. You know, just imagine having a great beach house to live in and love life for the rest of my years until I pass away from this earth. However, before that ever becomes a reality, I'm going to have to work my butt off. I'm going to have to work my whole life until I get to experience that joy, that destiny, you know, that product. Many people do this in the real world today, we know, working their whole lives just to pay off their mortgage or to buy a holiday house. In a reality, the promise is there, but it's just being postponed until the journey is complete. A journey of working and working and working and paying off and paying off and paying off the mortgage until they can fully experience the blessings of that particular destination. And it's the same way with the Jews. It's the same in the sense that the blessings installed for the Jews from God have been postponed. The ones which he promised from the beginning with their forefather Abraham. He wants to bless them. He hasn't let go of those blessings because he's promised them. He's promised these blessings, and so his promises have not been cancelled. They've just been postponed. In other words, he hasn't given up on them. So why do we need to know this? Why is this so important? How does it relate to us? The answer is that if we actually believe God, that he's going back on his promises with the Jews. He's gone back with his promises with the Jews, like so many Christians think these days. And we can doubt ourselves. 
we can legitimately doubt that he'll live up to his promises towards us just as easily. Because if he went back on his promises with the Jews, well, why should we trust him that he won't do the same with us? I think you're in this room this morning because you believe in God's promises, right? You believe that God lives up to his promises, is trustworthy. And if he promises something, he will go through with it. He will provide even when we don't understand it ourselves. So let's get into it, shall we? Verse 25 of Romans chapter 11. I've got a number of things I'm doing here just to go through. Paul says, still to the brethren, which could include both Jews and Gentiles, remember, Gentiles being anyone who is not a Jew, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you would not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And I underlined mystery there because you could say a mystery is like a secret, something that hasn't been fully revealed to them. It's a mystery. There's a number of times that Paul uses this word mystery in the New Testament, and it relates to all different things when you look at each passage, but it always focuses on something that hasn't been fully revealed. So what's the question? What's the mystery Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25? Firstly, before we get into that, the text says to not be wise in your own estimation, which we've been learning about in the previous verses. He warns the audience. He warns us, don't let pride creep in. And I was just thinking about last week's message, and I know some of you have been through a lot of um, churches uh, been through a lot in churches as well. Some of you have been Christians for a long time, I know. Some of you have been listening to me online. We have listeners from all different backgrounds. Some have been Christians for a short time, but most have been Christians for a long time, especially in this room, because I know you. And I also know that you've experienced a number of different church contexts. And when you look back, I'm sure you can focus on the ones where there was a falling out, right? I was just talking about one such church with someone the other day. This particular church resulted in a split. No, no surprise there, right? But this church was noted for splits. And yes, it was a Baptist church. And that's because, you know, it was full of Christians having more than one opinion of every situation, correct? As the joke goes, if you put four Baptists in a room, it's inevitable that you will get five opinions. That's what Baptists are famous for. But if you look at your own experience of church, you would notice it all falls and rises on the leadership for the reason that it either went down or a split happened. And you could say that the reason that church went down or the reason that split occurred was because of pride. You look at every situation that you've been through, you could cut it down and point it straight back to pride. I think it all comes back down to pride. So we need to be real and understand that We all have to guard ourselves. So if you see me, for instance, being proud, I ask that you give me a slap in the face. Tell me to wake up and then pray that I listen to you. And don't be wise in your own estimations. Don't be proud when it comes to the secret. This is a mystery. This is it. What's the mystery? It's a partial hardening that's happened to Israel. 
And that partial hardening has never been fully revealed throughout the scripture. Partial hardening, what does that mean? I won't recap too much of what this word means as I've gone through it in past messages. And you can always refer back to those online, either any of the major podcasts, particularly Spotify. Look at Fraser Ghost Baptist Church and you can see every message in Romans that I've recorded so far. But for those who are new, just visiting us today, here's a quick overview. We could say that God has blinded, which some translations have put it as hardening, is another word. God has blinded or hardened the Jews from being able to receive him. And when it comes to partial hardening, does this mean the individual Jew has been to a certain degree partially blinded? Or is it something else? I say it's something else. So when I ask if it's to a certain degree which an individual Jew has been blinded, it's not like he or she is being like 70% blinded or he or she is 80 or 90% blinded. So is it you know a 20% chance, for instance, that the Jew will come to know Christ because his or her heart is 20% open to knowing Christ? I don't think that's it at all. When it comes to partial hardening, I believe it means that not every single Jew has been hardened or blinded. Now, when you look at the whole Jewish race, there's a partial section, partial amount that have been hardened. And we know this is true because when we've been reading Romans 11, the indication that God has not given up his promises to the Jews is that there will always be a remnant. There will always be a small amount of believers within the Jews because, and this is the same today, there are individual Jews coming to know Christ today. It's not the majority. It's just a small amount. It's a remnant. So we know that every single Jew has not been hardened. For instance, Paul, he was a Jew. He had not been hardened. We've read early on in the passage, and it'll be referenced to again later this morning, verses 30 to 32, that in order for Christ to have been crucified on the cross, there had to be a hardening of the Jews. And to make that happen, in other words, for that to happen, um, the Jews virtually blinded by God. For some, that's, that's very hard to comprehend. But please, please remember, this is very important. If one's heart is hardened by God, the individual has to harden it themselves first. So God doesn't just do it to anyone. I mean, we read that and studied that in Romans chapter 9, remember? It's a very deep thought. But if you're new to this passage, then do yourself a favor and just ignore that for now. All you need to know is partial hardening is the mystery that has happened to Israel. Or you could say there are a majority of the Jews, not all of them, just some of them, which have been hardened or blinded. But we see in this verse that there's a time limit to that hardening. There's a time limit when it's not going to happen anymore. He's going to release his hardening. And it says here in verse 25 that it's until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The question that everyone asks is, what exactly is the fullness of the Gentiles? And no surprise, 
there are a number of interpretations of what this fullness or the word fullness actually means. You may remember that we actually looked at this exact word in verse 12. So I'm going to refer back to that because I actually interpret the fullness of the Gentiles being similar to the fullness of the Jews in the sense that I believe it's an event. Now, when this word is used throughout Scripture, <clears throat> excuse me, it has a number of meanings. Number one is filling with a number. Um, so, now for instance, to fill this room, it would be, say, a couple of hundred. So that would be the fullness of this room, that particular amount of people that would fill it. Um, it could also be a completeness in time, you know, a fullness of completeness in time. It can mean abundance. It can also mean keeping. Now, in verse 12, when we talked about the fullness of the Jews, I interpreted that, and I didn't have anyone questioning me or talk to me about it, so I assume you're agreeing with me. When we look at verse 12, the fullness of the Jews, we defined as the completeness of blessings with the Jews or the completeness of time of the Jews in which they would receive those blessings. So in other words, when it comes to their journey with God, it's a time when they receive the fullness of every blessing that God has promised to them throughout Scripture. Now, this, of course, depends, as I said back then, on your eschatology or your interpretation of end times. If you're wondering, the word eschatology is the Christian word just to mean the study of end times. But I believe the fullness of the Jews is the time when the millennial kingdom actually begins. This is the start time when Christ will actually come down to earth and he will physically and literally reign here on earth for 1,000 years. Now, a lot of Christians think that 1,000 years mentioned in scripture is an allegory. I personally take it as a literal amount of time. But nevertheless, regardless of what we believe with that, we as Gentiles won't be here to see what happens because of an event which we call the rapture. Now, I'll ask you to bear with me as I look to talk about that soon. But talking about the fullness of the Jews found in verse 12 and seeing that as an event that will culminate all the promises of God that are read throughout the Old Testament, I compare the fullness of the Gentiles as being one extravagant event as well. Now, if you've heard numerous preachers teaching this passage, more than likely you would have heard that this fullness represents a particular number of Gentiles that will be saved, which will set off this event and bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. Of course, this number is one that only God knows, and once it's reached, then we'll find ourselves meeting Jesus in the air. That is the rapture. So you can see how they come up with this interpretation because of mixing the completeness of time with the filling of a number. And it sounds good as it's a mystery. No one can know it except God. However, I propose a possible danger with this interpretation. In the end, we still all believe in this one event that will happen that will culminate the fullness of the Gentiles. But if we take into account the secret number that only God has in mind, it could allow us to get into a place where we evangelize all we can to, just to reach this certain number faster. If it's already been predetermined, then the faster we reach it, the faster this event will occur, correct? It's good, and that it may help us on fire with our evangelism, 
But I do see the danger might come when we might get ourselves to a place where we're discouraged because, well, everyone's rejecting the gospel message. I might think this number is not going to get reached as quickly as I hoped for and well, it may result in a kind of giving up or I think, well, might as well not try at all. I'm saying that it may discourage us if we had this particular number continually on our minds and that was the motivation towards reaching it faster, even though in the end, we never know that number ourselves. But as I said, either way, in the end, the interpretation is that the fullness of the Gentiles ultimately represents a completeness in time, a time where us Gentiles will receive the culmination of blessings that God has promised us. And what is that? Well, what's the ultimate thing that you are looking forward to? You know, what's the ultimate promise God has given us? Well, I think it's our glorification. That's what we're all waiting for, right? Our glorification, that time where our bodies, our physical bodies, will be changed in an instant. We will have physical bodies that are just perfect, absolute perfection. No more pain, no more aches. Much better looking than we are now. No spots, no wrinkles, just absolute perfection. So the moment of salvation, our hearts were renewed. But we're still waiting for two other parts of our body to be renewed. They are our minds. So glorification will also give us perfect minds and our bodies, our physical bodies. I don't think we'll have any temptation to sin in those new bodies. We'll have perfect physical bodies. Much better looking than we have already, I'm sure. So when does this happen? It's an event that we call the rapture. This is the event that will personally happen to us unless we pass away in death from the earth first. But this instant glorification that will happen in this event, we call the rapture. Now, first, before we get into that, the other interesting interpretation I found was that the fullness of the Gentiles means a time when vast amounts of Gentiles get saved. That's the other interpretation that I've come across. People say when we have a huge revival around the whole world, then the partial hardening will be released. Uh, I just don't feel right with this interpretation as I see a few inconsistencies with it. So the rapture, we find this in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 primarily. If you have your Bibles there, I won't go through it now, but as you see, the substance of the passages is that it's our comfort, as you see on the screen. It's our encouragement, our hope. That might be the title in your Bible. It's where we will instantly disappear from this world and we'll meet Jesus in the air. Now, a lot of people have tried to make movies to depict this kind of event, but can you just picture it yourself? Just all the born-again believers, Christians who trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, just instantly disappear from this world regardless of what they're doing at that time. Anyway, a total disappearance of millions of people here in the world. Now, be careful. This is different to when we talk about Jesus' second coming. We are not talking about the millennial kingdom. 
The rapture says that we will meet Jesus in the air. So Jesus is technically not coming back when we think of the rapture, even though a lot of people, including myself in the past, I confess, have interpreted that as Jesus' second coming when we look at Matthew 24 and 25. But the rapture can happen anytime in an instant. And of course, no one knows when it will happen. So to summarize, when it comes to the culmination of our blessings, I can see this event being the fullness of the Gentiles. It's an interesting thing to imagine exactly when you look at Hollywood, you know, home that they've tried to depict. It's the connection that I see with us receiving the ultimate blessings that God has promised. Now, just on a side note, I thought I would, um, I thought just when this event does occur, just be aware that if you are left here on earth, God forbid, I hope even this morning as you're listening to this message, you believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you believe that, you trust him as the payment of your sins that you owe, are indebted to, then I believe you'll be taken away with us. But if you want to picture the world when that happens, I know I have a feeling that the authorities, well, that is the government, I'll try to explain it away, of course. I reckon they'll probably say something ludicrous like that they've been abducted by aliens. But if you're here on this earth when the rapture occurs and you get left behind, so to speak, there's going to be all sorts of things that follow. And this is the big one. Verse 26 goes on to say that all of Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from his land. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So Jacob, therefore, refers to Israel because we know his name was later changed. And we see this prophecy mentioned in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 20 to 21. But all Israel will be saved. It looks to me that certainty in Paul's eyes that all of Israel will be saved just as he you know, his reference backs it up with Old Testament scripture. So I'm thinking, why will all of Israel be saved when this event occurs? I thought about that and then came up with a conclusion that, well, you know, if I put myself in the Jews, in shoes of a Jew looking for the Messiah, I hear all these Christians proclaiming Jesus. I can't believe that. But then I read their New Testament. I read verses like First Thessalonians. I read about this event, about meeting Jesus in the air. You know, if that actually happens before my eyes, do you think my conclusions about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, may change? Yeah, I think so. I'm probably thinking, well, mm, maybe the Christians were right after all. So therefore, that's why I personally believe there'll be a huge revival with Israel once this fullness of the Gentiles occurs. Now on the screen, you'll see a meme that says, hold up, wait a minute. And I highly recommend you look this up. It's another crazy interview by an American. I forget what the story is. I think someone broke into his house. And in the interview, he shouts out, hold up, wait a minute. Now it's just the way he says that makes it funny. In the interview, it's what some people have done is made it into a song. Now who remembers back in the day that they've done this before? I don't know how many years it was. Another American lady mentioning something along the lines of bronchitis, you know, and she follows it with, ain't nobody got time for that. And then some people made a song out of that, bronchitis, ain't nobody got time for that. You know, well, they've done the same thing with this guy. Hold up, wait a minute. 
And I've uh, put this on the screen just for the purposes of asking the same question, actually. <clears throat> when it comes to what Paul has just said in verse 26, there has to be a question. What is it? Well, you know, I've just read Romans chapter 9. And the first three verses now don't make sense. Look, there, right now, if you wish, like Romans chapter 9, he would do anything for the Jews to be saved. But now he's saying that all of Israel will be saved. So what's going on? If he knows all of Israel will be saved, then why would he do anything for them to be saved, even be accursed from God? doesn't make sense. And the answer is, of course, well, Jews back then and even present-day Jews today, they are still dying in their sins. As we know, they reject Jesus Christ as being the way, the truth, and the life, punished for their unbelief. Because all we need is faith to become righteous before God, remember, to acquire Christ's righteousness. And so we have to admit, if a Jew dies today in their sins, they will, fortunately, go to hell. There is coming a time when all of them will be saved. Now, does all mean all? I suggest you look up Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33, 38. Read that passage to answer this question. And the reason I ask this question, if you know me, is um, I guess big on my theology lately, going through Romans chapter 9, when we come to the doctrine of Calvinism. There is an issue with asking a question, did Christ die for all people or just the elect? I've been discovering lately that this theology was the reason for the, for the first split in the Baptist movement. Can you believe it? And so the Calvinists would say, no, all means all kinds of people. I'm looking at the passages, for instance, where 1 Timothy 4, Christ was a ransom for all. 1 John 2, Christ's sacrifice is the propitiation of our sins, not just only, but for the whole world, for all people. So they read these passages and say, no, 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 no. What the writer means is that he's talking about all kinds of people. And how do they interpret this? Well, for instance, they would turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. The love of money is the root of all evil. But you couldn't say that, could you? You couldn't say every single act of evil is a result from the love of money. Yeah, for example, my son this morning disobeyed me. I asked him to put a grape from my other son's meal into the bin so the dog wouldn't eat it, of course. He decided to actually give it to the dog. Now, I'm not sure now if I explicitly said the danger of that, but regardless, my son disobeyed me. He didn't put the grape in the bin. Now ask yourself a question. Did my son's love of money result in that kind of evil? Or no. And so therefore, we have to conclude that the love of money is the result of all kinds of evil. Now Calvinists interpret the same way in John chapter 12, verse 32. Christ would draw all men once he is raised from the dead. They would say that he would just draw all kinds of men to himself to safeguard their doctrine of limited atonement. Now, the reason I say th this is because when you look at the verse 26 in chapter 11 of Romans, all of Israel will be saved. Well, ironically, I actually don't think that all means all in this case, mainly because of Ezekiel 20. Verses 33 to 38. Ezekiel 20, if you look there, describes that while all of these Jews will be saved, at the same time, some have to be purged out, which tells me not everyone will believe in Christ. So now we come to verse 27. 
This is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. In verse 27, chapter 11, another prophecy Paul brings out, just another indication that Paul is talking about a total wipeout of their sins. Contrast this with the Old Testament way of forgiveness and sacrifices. You know, Christ never took away their sins, remember. He only covered them, particularly for the Day of Atonement. For instance, check out Psalm 14, verse 7. Isaiah 59, verses 20 and 21 uh, that we just looked at. Um, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. So this is a complete taking away of all their sins. And this is the same forgiveness that we experience today once we place our trust in Jesus Christ as Gentiles. And then verse 28 talks about the gospel and our enemies. You know, to read it very carefully concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of your fathers. And then verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So when it comes to the gospel, Jews are our enemies. But concerning the election or concerning God's choice, they are friends. You know, remember, election just means choice. And there are many things in life that God chooses. You know, for instance, the election of angels. We've already talked about the election in previous chapters of our salvation, exactly what that means. Again, not a teaching that I believe that God only chooses certain people for salvation. We know that's false. You can check out my series on Romans 9 if you're still not convinced. But they are beloved concerning the election for the sake of the fathers, the fathers being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they are two people to us, one being an enemy for the sake of the gospel, because they are against us when it comes to the good news. They don't believe that Jesus Christ offers forgiveness of sins. If they don't believe that, they're an enemy. But when it comes to what God has chosen them to do, they are really beloved. When it comes to his ultimate plan, and reconciling this too is very important. Firstly, this can be very interesting at times. Basically, when you are friends with Jews yourself, a very careful balance has to be in your life. You ever find yourself befriending some? Yeah, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers because of this verse 29. Because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You know, God has promised these gifts. God has called them for a purpose. And it does go far beyond not just bringing Jesus Christ into the world. He hasn't just allowed that purpose to come about and then given up on them and then rejected them fully. Why? Because the calling is irrevocable. And there are all these promises to the Jews that I mentioned in the Old Testament that haven't been fulfilled yet. God's calling, God's gifts are irrevocable. He doesn't take them back, doesn't call them back, doesn't cancel them. We go back to our main theme of Romans 11. God has not canceled his promises to the Jews. But today, a lot of people abuse verse 29, actually. And I ask you to be aware of this, because I could easily abuse this verse myself as a pastor. You know, first, I could easily say that my calling for me is irrevocable. For instance, I can say, honestly, you know, God has called me into this position of leading Fraser Ghost Baptist Church. You know, I fully believe that. I am 100% convinced that God has called me into this position. But let's just say, hypothetically, God forbid it happens, I go and do all sorts of manner of evil. I commit adultery, cheat on my wife, steal from people's pockets, rob a bank because I need money. I get addicted to alcohol, drugs, do all sorts of horrible things. Let's just say I even go to the extreme, 
kill someone. Now, maybe I've done a bit too much hyperbole there, but whatever the case is, I come back to the church and say, no, 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 no. You can't get rid of me. God's calling on my life is irrevocable. So you see, it can be very dangerous. We have to be very careful with this verse because it can be taken out of context very easily. You know, another way this verse is abused by a lot of preachers or pastors is that they use it to manipulate people into believing that whatever they say goes because God's gift of prophecy toward them is irrevocable. It's a very dangerous place to be. I think it's very dangerous to take and apply this verse to ourselves. I believe this is just something that is concerning the Jews. It's not an individual thing when it comes to the gifts and the calling that God talks about in other passages of Scripture. It's a corporate calling, a corporate gift. So we can apply it to the Gentiles in the sense that God is going to go through with his promise of glorifying us. In the same sense, God's going to go through with his promise in blessing the Jews. Now, just some quick application for us. How to love your enemies. Um, you know, they are enemies for the gospel's sake. I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5.44. And all I can tell you is, don't let pride allow you to not love your enemies. Because it all comes back down to pride. And I wonder, I do wonder whether that's why that is the number one thing that God hates. Pride is the foundation, really, of all our sins that we find ourselves committing. Self-centeredness takes the focus of yourself and allows you to love your enemies. Taking the focus of yourself, that's the key. Before we read the next few verses found in verses 30 to 32, I'd like to touch on the word mercy first, okay? So mercy, uh, mentioned quite a, a number of times here. If you have any version, actually, I think mercy is always used. If you've read these verses before a number of times, you might just say, oh, that's great. You know, God has mercy for us all. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I do want to go a little bit deeper uh, for these last few verses that we're going to touch on this morning. Now, here's the definition of mercy as a reminder. It's withholding something that you deserve. So when you distinguish that between grace, because we know God has mercy and grace towards us when it comes to our salvation. Therefore, salvation with grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. But at the same time, it's withholding something that we do deserve. So what's something that we don't deserve? Heaven, a new creation. It's really God within us. Blessings, peace, joy, righteousness, so on. What's, the, what's he withholding that we do deserve? Well, judgment, wrath, punishment, all those things that are miserable. So it's something to keep in mind when we look at these next few verses. As another illustration, um, you know, if someone hits me, I can show them mercy by not hitting them back. But then I could show them grace as well in the sense that I could bless them after they have hit me. You see the difference? So this is uh, verse 30. For uh, just as you... Once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient because of the mercy shown to you, that they also may now be shown mercy. For God has given all people over to their stubborn ways so that he can show mercy to all. You see, you see what I mean with the word mercy? So I've just put, um, and, and sorry for not going through that so far quickly, if you're watching a video right now. 
what I've done is I've put through the three verses on the screen at the same time, and I've highlighted in bold the words mercy. Let's just for a moment quickly summarize what God is saying, or what Paul is saying through God, rather, whichever way you want to put it, in these verses regarding God's mercy. But just as you once were disobedient, verse 30, just as the Gentiles were disobedient, remember we're all disobedient before coming to Christ, we're all sinners, in other words, but we have been shown mercy. So throughout the ages, even as the Gentiles, we were disobedient as Gentiles. We have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. Whose disobedience? The Jews. Gentiles have been shown mercy through the Jews' disobedience. And how is that the case? Well, we went through it at the start of chapter 11. You might have to look at some previous recordings to understand that more fully. But in a nutshell, it's only because of the Jews' disobedience that Christ was crucified and through his crucifixion became his resurrection and through his resurrection became our salvation. And so our salvation, God's mercy, could only have been performed, could only have been executed through or because of the Jews' disobedience. Next verse, so the E's also now have been disobedient. These, the Jews, they have also now been disobedient. And because of the mercy shown to you as Gentiles, or as a Gentile, they also may now be shown mercy. Because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. In other words, since God has shown mercy to the Gentiles, why shouldn't he be able to show mercy to the Jews? God has given all people over to their stubborn ways so that he can show mercy to all. Now, verse 32 really, I think, summarizes what Paul is trying to say. God has given all people over to their stubborn ways so that he can show mercy to all. And that all means all. <laughs> if you want to paraphrase that a, a better way, because I could not find a good translation with verse 32, God has given all people the ability to choose or to reject God in his ways God does not make us choose him. Remember in Revelation 3, he knocks. He knocks on the door. He doesn't knock down the door of your heart. He knocks on the door. He allows us to get to a place where we become stubborn so that we may ask him for mercy. And isn't that true in our lives? Statistics show that people come to accept Christ when they're in a low point in their life. God has allowed them to get to that point so he can show mercy. It's not just happened to the Jews. It happens to the Gentiles. And the overall point is, through the whole age of history, when you look at each and every single event, the overall desire of God is that he shows mercy to all. He is a God of mercy. And here's a quote that I'd love for you to ponder upon for a few moments. Jerry Bridges, I don't know who he is, but I just came across the quote this morning. It is just beautiful and profound. Here's the quote. It is just as important to trust him than it is to obey him. When we disobey God, we defy his authority and despise his holiness. But when we fail to trust God, we doubt his sovereignty and question his goodness. So here we have trust and we have obedience. And when we disobey him, yes, we defy his authority. Yes, we despise his holiness. But when we fail to trust him, when we doubt his sovereignty, we doubt whether he's in control of everything. We question his goodness when we don't trust him. I ask which one is worse, not obeying him or not trusting him. 
He obviously wants us to do both. But I think trust is a big one. And remember, he wants us to not just trust him for our salvation, but even in the small things, even the small things of life. I think of uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with everything. Acknowledge him within everything, and he will direct your paths. So the response for us could be, well, where are you at? On a superficial level, this passage might be saying, hey, God loves you, and that's fine. If you had that little, just know. If you are doubting God loves you, read that again. God has mercy for all. God loves you. The question that you need to answer in this room is, will you accept his love? You only have to accept it once. Have you ever accepted his free gift of salvation? Have you ever called upon his name to save you? Because you realize that you are a sinner. You realize that you are in need of forgiveness. You realize that only Jesus Christ can forgive you. Have you accepted that? If not, well, today's the day. You're listening right now. You can accept him. You can believe him. You can trust him. What you said could be as simple as saying, as I have on the screen here, you know, praying. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. It shows that you believe that what he did on the cross is enough for you to decide. Please forgive me. Come into my life. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Now help me to live for you the rest of this life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It's a simple expression of calling upon the name of the Lord. Have you done that? As I said, you only have to do it once. For the rest of us, can I just think of that quote, trusting Jesus? When we refuse to do that with me, with him, don't, you know, don't do that with questioning the goodness of God. Now, where are you at in your journey with Christ? Are you growing? Are you maturing? Has these insights into the plan of God for the Jews helped you? As it's not just, has, or have you just done this exercise just to increase your knowledge of God's plan? You know, of reading the history throughout the ages. Or has it inspired you to live a more holy life? to become more reliant on God for everything that you need. I hope it has. So we'll come back in May before we get back on our road through Romans. That'll be the next time I'll look at the remaining three verses, Romans chapter 11. Um, I see it's well, nearly approaching actually 50 minutes, 45 minutes at the moment. Um, so I'm glad I didn't uh, end with these. I'm glad I've delayed these last uh, last three verses, which we'll look at shortly. Well, Let's thank God for his promises, shall we? Lord, we thank you that you are trustworthy. Thank you that you have given Paul this insight into your plans regarding the Jews so he could put it down on paper, where we can further grasp an understanding of what your plans are in this world. Now, because we confess there are times, even in our own lives, where we doubt what you're doing is the right way. There's times when we question your sovereignty. We question even that promise that all things work together for good, for those who love you. And even that causes misunderstanding, causes our enemy to get a foothold sometimes into our minds. Father, we know that the devil wants to get inside our minds. So please help us guard ourselves against those thoughts. Help us to always be on the right track, having a desire to always express Jesus in every decision that we make and every action that we take. We just ask for your continued blessings upon us as we go our separate ways and enter what is in reality the mission field. Help us to be vigilant people so we can proclaim your love. Maybe even this week, we might come across a Jew and have the opportunity 
to proclaim Jesus Christ. We pray that we can be used for your purposes and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.